This is going to be part two for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And uh, as I said, it's going to be this Wednesday. So my prayer tonight is just that it kind of encourages you a little bit to take this day a little bit more seriously and, and find the blessings in it. Um, to be able to self-reflect and be prepared to celebrate. Um, you know, Jesus said, the man who loves or who has been forgiven much loves much. And until we know how much we have been forgiven, until we know truly how unworthy we are, uh, the celebration won't be as sweet. And so we are in those 10 days of awe between the day, uh, you know, trumpets to atonement. And it is a time where we should be reflecting and uh, repenting, examining ourselves. So keep that in mind as we go through this study tonight. Now, we're going to focus a little bit more on what Jesus did to fulfill, in part, this festival. Now, I say in part because the, the Day of Atonement ultimately is also a picture of end times. The spring festivals, as I've said, talk about his first coming. The fall festivals, his second coming. But his first coming, he also gave tastes of this and did some of these things as well. He is the Passover sacrifice, no question about it. But he also is the atonement sacrifice. He is all of it, just like he is every piece of the tabernacle. For the uh, Sukkot here, I'm going to be speaking on the tabernacle, and you're going to see how Jesus is every part of that tabernacle. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited about some of the things that I'll be sharing with you. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. Um, I'm going to be speaking on the godly family one of those nights. encourage you to come and listen to that as well. I think we all need to be reminded of that. I spoke on that, I think, in Iowa here this last week, and my wife said, you really need to do that for the group. And so that's going to be a message that we're going to be doing, um, as well as a number of other things. But anyway, um, Leviticus 16.5 here says, He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats, as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. The two goats make a sin offering. What I want you to see is that there are two animals, but it makes one offering. Now, I think that's significant. I don't know, this is just kind of coming to me now, but in the fact that Yeshua's coming twice, that he did make an offering once, but he is going to come a second time, but not to uh, offer himself a sin. That's done. But <coughs> to bring judgment upon the world. In a sense, once he brought atonement for the world, and the other, he brings judgment to the world. You're going to see that that's in essence what these goats do. One brings atonement, the other one takes sin away, and that sin is judged. So, I don't know, but anyway, the point being is there is a sin offering here. And you can kind of see pictured what would go on here on this Day of Atonement. The most holy day of the year to this day in a Jewish household. I said last week, even atheistic Jews many times will actually come and at least fast or recognize this day. Because in some way they feel like... Well, they've got a terrible view. They've got actually a view that many have in the church. That if they come and do their penitence or their, what is that word, penance? Yeah. If they come and do that, that somehow their slate is clean for the year. I remember as a kid, I used to have this idea at communion. Growing up in the church that I did, I kind of, even though they didn't teach it this way really, it was kind of me reading between the lines, but I think a lot of people had this view, that 
I would go throughout the week and then you could go and take communion and it was like picturing that God had wiped your slate clean and then you could kind of go off with a clean slate and start dirtying it up again. Not that I was trying to, but I had the idea of this clean slate through communion. That's how they view this. That this day is so holy that they come and they think, well, once a year I'm going to come and I'm going to start with a clean slate. No, that's a works righteous kind of thing as well. This is Jesus once for all. The death he died, he cannot die again. He has given you a clean slate, period. But this is how many of them view it. So what they would do is you had these two priests. Uh, well, really one high priest that you can see standing here in the middle. Remember, he wore all white. Um, and that is what we are going to wear. When we read in the book of Revelation, we're giving white robes to wear. There's a reason white is being pictured, and we have holy to the Lord. We're, we're holy, all of these things, because that is, a, I think, in part, a fulfillment of this festival in the future. Well, the priest had two assistants. On his right hand was a prefect, and on his left was the head of his father's house. And that's why you can see two other people standing here, okay? Now, what would happen is the high priest in the middle, would you can kind of see he's got a little lot or something in his hand, but he would normally have a little lottery box in front of him. And he would reach into that box, and keep in mind in, in temple times that this was all going on at the temple in the tabernacle times. It was kind of right in the temple or the, uh, the tabernacle. And they would have a solid gold in the temple times. It was a solid gold lottery box. He would reach in with one hand and pull out a stone with his right hand, reach in with his left hand, pull out a stone. But what you would see is this. There was a lot for Adonai. So it was kind of like casting lots, and a lot for Azazel. I'll get to what Azazel means in a minute. But he'd grab one stone in each hand, and then one was black and one was white. When he opened up his hands, basically the person on his left or right, depending on which one the white stone came up in, he would say, my Lord, the priest, raise up your left hand. If it was in the right hand, the prefect would say, my Lord, the priest, raise up your right hand. And he would raise up the stone. And you can see that he has his right hand lifted up. And so what that meant was, is that the one for Azazel and the one for the Lord, the one for the Lord was raised up. The white stone was raised up. Now, they would put the lot, then the other hand would be for the other goat that would be called the scapegoat. Now, you, we, we use that term all the time today about, you know, a scapegoat. Somebody that basically takes the fall for you. In essence, that's what was going on here. The one that was for the Lord meant that that animal was going to be sacrificed as the offering. His blood was going to be shed and then offered on the altar. The one for Azazel, the priest was going to lay his hands on that goat and then they would tie a red scarlet thread around the neck and they would also hang one up in the temple they would then take that goat out into the wilderness and it would typically be taken and, from what I've read, thrown off of a cliff or led off of a cliff because the sins of the people were laid on that goat. You don't want to see your sins one day coming back into town. And so this was to go away forever. It was a picture of your sins being taken out into the wilderness. Okay? Now, we'll hit more details as we move on through this, but 
In the Bible, this is what it says. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. So that's the one that is for Adonai, for the Lord. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let go, let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. So, the one that was for the Lord, the blood was poured out on the mercy seat. Uh, not all of it, but uh, some of it was poured on the mercy seat or the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant had what was called an atonement cover on it. And that blood was put on that atonement cover. Okay? Now, the cords that were tied on the scapegoat, on the sacrificial goat, and on the tabernacle or in the temple... You've heard me say this before, but I think it's just so remarkable and amazing that I, I want, if people haven't heard this, you need to hear this. The miracle, or I should say a miracle, took place every year, according to tradition, according to what the Jews' historical records tell us. There's nothing about it in the Bible. But that red scarlet thread would miraculously turn white. Now, I'm going to show you some amazing things about that, but Isaiah 1.18 says this, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. The rabbis teach that this was a picture of that, that their sins, their scarlet, was being made pure. Their sins were taken away. That's what the Day of Atonement was all about. That's why this is so important. Because you can't forget to celebrate this because atonement was a national judgment day. Passover was for the individual. But atonement was for the nation. Tell you what, our nation needs atonement. Our nation needs repentance today. And... It, we can't just be thinking just about us. Because let me tell you, what's going on in this nation is affecting your children, your grandchildren. It's affecting your great-grandchildren. It's affecting your children yet to be born. And we need to be praying for this nation. We should be repenting because our repentance affects this nation. Now, in verse 10 of Leviticus 16, um, this word here, scapegoat, that I read for you a moment ago, the actual Hebrew word there is Azazel. And so you, if you wonder where is this Azazel coming from, it's because of that. That word scapegoat in Hebrew is Azazel. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But this miracle that took place of the red scarlet turning white is amazing because the rabbis teach that for 40 years before the destruction of the temple, which took place in 70 AD, the thread of scarlet never turned white, but it remained red. The one that they'd hang in the temple. They would hang, the, yeah. So, they're teaching that this miracle stopped 40 years before the the temple was destroyed. That's just what they say. Now, as a believer in Yeshua, I find it interesting because if you go back 40 years before the temple is destroyed, this is when Yeshua is walking on the earth. I would suspect that it was basically when he died. For some reason, this miracle stopped. Now, they have an explanation as they always do. And their explanation is this, there was a false Messiah that came. And so many people followed this false Messiah that God was angry with them. I kind of think that the real Messiah came and he was saying atonement has been made. He was going to enter once for all, it is now done. And that temple then was going to be destroyed because there would be no more sacrifices. Right? Well, remember, I want you to kind of 
take your mind back to that picture. You had the high priest, and then you had the two. The prefect and the, the, the son of the father's house that was there. Okay? Now, take your mind and imagine Yeshua standing before Pilate. And standing before Pilate are two people, Yeshua and a guy named Barabbas. Barabbas is basically two words. Bar means son of, and Abba or Abbas, high father. Son of high father. Remember, the guy on one side of the high priest was the son of the father's house. I think that Barabbas was the scapegoat. Because the sins were then laid on that person, laid off into the, led off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Scripturally speaking, we see Barabbas he goes free, he goes off, and he is never seen again. Don't know? Bible doesn't say that's what he is, but I see that picture... Um, there's no indication that he was repentant, that he basically goes back to Satan. The idea of Azazel was this, that the sins were taken back to the wilderness, back to where they came from, back to the devil himself. So, Barabbas had another name. Remember what his first name was? Yeshua. Yeshua Barabbas is his full name. That's what scripture tells us, Jesus Barabbas. I don't remember exactly where, which gospel it's in, but it it's calls him Yeshua Barabbas. In other words, the Lord saves the son of the father. Okay, So standing before Pilate is Yeshua, Yeshua. One is going to go off into the wilderness. The other will be an atonement sacrifice. Leviticus 16.15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. The records say that when the high priest would sprinkle this blood, he would have hyssop and it would be like the cracking of a whip. That They would do it that quickly and just, just throw that blood around, splattering it. But um, with this blood, just picture this in your mind, that there would be a trail of blood leading to the mercy seat of God. When Jesus ascended, he sits down where? At the throne of God. Ending his trail, ending his journey, ending his sacrifice at the very mercy seat, or literally the atonement seat and where at but the right hand of God the right hand of the throne of God one for Adonai one for Azazel verse 18 he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. The only time blood was put on the altar of incense and its horns was on this day of Yom Kippur. Now, the altar of incense that is being talked about here represents prayer. We've talked about that when we were going through Revelation, uh, the, the prayers of the saints and so on. So I won't go through that again, but again, it is a perfect picture of, of that going on here. Verse 20 continues, when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, because remember, it was an atonement for not just you, but for the holy place itself. The tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, 
confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. That's scripture. A suitable man was to lead them. Well, the sages record a prayer that was said at this time. The priest lays hands on the goat and confesses all of the sins to Israel, saying, O Lord, your people, the house of Israel, have committed iniquity, transgressed and sinned before you. Forgive, O Lord, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which you people, the house of Israel, have committed and transgressed and sinned before you. As it is written in the Torah of Moses, your servant, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. From all your sins shall you be clean before the Lord. That's a beautiful sinner's prayer right there. And this is that prayer of confession. Well, as I said, there are two lots that were cast, Azazel and one for Adonai or for God. One was uh, killed, the other was set free. You might even picture it possibly as a death and a resurrection. Don't know. But to me, it seems more likely this word Azazel. Azaz is just that word A-Z-A-Z. It means rugged. El means God or strong. And so it refers, they, the Jews say, a rugged mountain cliff. And so Azazel was then taken to this rugged mountain cliff and cast down. Nemonides, who is a very famous Jewish rabbi, um, held in high esteem by the Jews today, said that he belongs to the class of the Se'erim, the goat-like demons that haunt the desert. That's who Azazel is. Now, the sins and the evil consequences then, what they would see a picture of that is, is that those were taken back to the spirit of desolation and ruin. Kind of like I was saying before, back to the devil. Well, I didn't put Enoch up here, but you can go Google if you would like. Enoch, read chapter 6, uh, chapter 9 and 10. Just read chapter 6 through 10 even in the book of Enoch. Because it's interesting what Enoch says about Azazel. Azazel is mentioned by name in Enoch. And so I, I just have it here, but I didn't put it up there. Um, Enoch says that Azazel was a fallen angel who taught men warfare, making weapons, and he taught women the art of deception by ornamenting the body, dyeing the hair, painting the face and eyebrows. So a lot of makeup, dyeing of hair, you know, vanity. And you can read about that in Enoch. That's what he did. And I'm not saying it's sinful to wear makeup and dye your hair. I am not saying that at all. But I am saying this. Women have an unhealthy obsession with their beauty. And I think there's a connection there. That the devil wants to teach you women to not be satisfied with the way God has made you and that you need to constantly be, you know, adapting and changing what God has done. According to Enoch, that mentality seems to come from the devil. I would agree. <coughs> now, Azazel also taught them witchcraft, and he was bound hand and foot by the archangel Raphael and chained to the rough and jagged rocks of Hadudael, where he abides in utter darkness until the day of judgment, when he will be cast into fire to be consumed forever. That comes from Enoch chapter 8, uh, as well as some stuff from chapter 9, 10, and uh, even some beyond that, but those are the main parts. So, another aspect to that, you know, the scriptures are pretty clear about how women are supposed to be beautiful. 
It says, not with braided hair or gold or uh, expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. That's how a woman is to make herself beautiful today. Second Timothy speaks of this. Again, he's not saying that you can't do these things, but it's kind of like the law of God. It needs to come from the heart. If your heart is always concerned about your looks and you have a low self-esteem about your looks and are trying to constantly, you know, uh, find your worth in your looks, you're out of balance. And you need to maybe have a gut check. Maybe that during these 10 days of Oz uh, are some things for you to think about. Repent of, contemplate. Uh, not trying to attack women here, but what we see standing out in Enoch for me is he goes to the women. And I think there's a reason for that. And the main reason is the same reason Satan went after Eve. Because he knows to get the household to fall, he goes after the woman to get the male to fall. And the goal of going after the woman to me, the war isn't nearly as much as it is the deception and what the beauty causes men to do. Not that men aren't attracted to, attracted to a woman without the makeup, but I think the devil was trying to go after sexual lusts and things like that. So, uh, I, yes, and so for the men, I would say that uh, if it more than the swords in the war... It is the lust of the eyes and those kind of things that they need to be protecting and, and to, to meditate upon at this time. So verse 21 says of Leviticus 16, And he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the suitable man. I want to come back and revisit that because I love this. First of all, before I give you the, the part I like, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Like I said, they were taking this off into the wilderness. You weren't going to have this goat come back. And that's what Yeshua has done. Your sins are not coming back. They have been atoned for. And that is what we need to remember. According to tradition, there was... A, a large commotion that took place when the goat began his journey out into the solitary place. Because the goat, they would kind of line up, and as they would lead that goat out, the people would abuse that goat, pull at its wool, spit at him, poke him, prick him, do all of these things as the goat was led off into the wilderness. Okay? Matthew 26, verse 67 says, Then they spat in his face and beat him, speaking of Jesus, as he is arrested and then going to be led off to the cross. It says, Others struck him with the palms of their hands. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting Sounds exactly like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus is clearly our atonement. Whether Barabbas and Jesus are, I don't know. That's a picture that seems to make sense to me, but I can tell you this. In one way, shape, or form, Jesus is both goats. The sacrificial and the one that takes the, the sins off into the wilderness. I kind of think there's truth in both of those, Barabbas and Jesus being both of them. But... The goat taking their sins out into the wilderness. This is how the Old Testament confirmed Yeshua was the Messiah, was by looking at the law and the prophets. They knew this. They knew what they did year after year on the Day of Atonement. And when Jesus is doing this, you'd have to have a hard heart not to recognize Day of Atonement even though it was at Passover that this is all going on. But don't you think this has meaning for us today then? It should. This festival, we should, we should be really thinking about the great cost Yeshua has done for us. The spitting, the beating, the dying, the nailing, the, 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 the bleeding, the, 
I mean, all of it. I, I can't even imagine. But this is what Yeshua has done for us. And what we want to do is just, we just want to do the celebration. We don't want to focus on what it takes to get there. We do that for the Sabbath. We want our rest, but we don't want to prepare for it. We want to get to heaven, but we don't want to prepare to get to heaven. We just want to go live life for us right now. We want to celebrate tabernacles, but we don't want to go through the fasting day of the Day of Atonement. No, you need to reflect and take this seriously. This is what he did for you. This is how there should be a great commotion going on within you. Now, this suitable man, as he's led off, Matthew 27, 32, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Here's their suitable man leading Jesus to the cross. Simon of Cyrene. I find that just, I don't know, it gives me goosebumps. That Yeshua was even led to the cross that way because he couldn't do it. He couldn't carry it. I don't think that was an accident. I think that that was a divine appointment right there. Spiritual blindness. Again, it's the same thing we're looking at. How can people not see truth today? We see all these crazy people saying that we've got multiple genders and I'm not, you know. It's like, what? No, I saw somebody saying, you know, a thousand years from now, when they dig you up, the archaeologists are going to call you either a boy or a girl. There will not be anything in between. And I look at these people today who think that they can be something other than a boy or a girl, and you go, how can it happen? Because of spiritual blindness. It is the same thing with the Jews. Verse 22 goes on, The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. He shall release the goat in the wilderness. So the goat bears on itself the iniquities. That is exactly what Scripture says about Yeshua. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that you might die to sins and live for righteousness. 2 Peter 3, Peter somewhere, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that's what he does. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every Jew knew that you were laying the sins, the iniquities of the nation on the head of this goat. And this is what Isaiah... Remember, Jesus said, Believe Moses, for he wrote of me. Believe the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are testifying about Jesus here. Those sacrifices were about Jesus. And as we've said before, so many in the world today think these festivals, these biblical Moedim, these appointed times, that that was for the Jew and it's now done. Jesus came, it's all over. No, they are a shadow of things to come. Not they were a shadow, are a shadow. And it continues to speak. The Old Testament continues to speak of Yeshua. And if you think the Old Testament is this law, legalism, done away with, or no longer as is, is important as the New Testament anymore, you don't know your Bible and you need to stop and you need to take a, 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 another class on theology because you're missing it. You don't get the point. You're on the wrong road. You're going astray. You need to back up and get back on the right track and start reading the Old Testament with the eyes looking for Yeshua. And then you're going to find him everywhere. And then you're going to see that the Old Testament is as valid as it was the day it was written. Because every disciple found it as valid. They used it as their Bible to spread the gospel. Somehow we've lost that.
Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, this is before the temple was there. He shall take off the linen garments which he put on them, and he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. So on this day, the day of atonement, the high priest, when he was all in white, after he made those sacrifices, he took off his white garments, they were put away, and they were never to be used again or worn again. Huh. Here's what the, the Jewish records tell us. The priest, he shall store them away. This teaches us that they require being stored away forever. He shall not use those four garments for any other Yom Kippur. They would use some of the old priest garments to use for the candlesticks, yeah, but they would never wear them for those purposes again. Which is significant because... What we see here is when Jesus goes to the cross, remember he is our high priest. And what do they do? They take his white robes off. They cast lots for his clothing. And they were never to be used in the offering ever again. Never did the priest use those garments, any priest. I think that's why Jesus left them behind. Because he was fulfilling exactly what they were supposed to do. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, Therefore now on, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. In a spiritual sense, I think Jesus was leaving his clothes behind because he was showing us that he's never going to wear the garment of flesh again. Not that you wouldn't look at him and maybe think he's in the flesh, but it's not, he's never coming in the form of sinful man again. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was sinful. He was sinless. But even when he comes back, they see him... And he's in a glorified state. Okay, not like we know him today. I don't know, I can't tell you what all those differences are. All I know is that he left his grave clothes behind. He took them off and is never wearing those again. Okay, so I think that even this is prophetic here that he was going to never use those clothing again, those clothes again. Day of Atonement. Remember that there were 30 days called the time of Elul, or from Elul, 30 days to Tishri 1, and then 10 days of awe for a total, day, total time of 40 days of repentance, Teshuvah. And we are basically coming upon the end of these 10 days of awe in that. So I just kind of want you to see uh, the timeline here. I think there are many ways that these fall festivals fit into a, a, a pattern prophetically. I don't know which one's right. I've been telling you about Revelation, and I don't know where that seven-year period is. I, there are so many ways it could be, and I just don't know for sure, and I don't want to teach you wrong. I think there's a possibility it's not so clean cut that those seven years may even start after the first couple of horses or maybe even after the four horses. And maybe those are things that lead up to it. I, I don't know. But... It's the same with this. I don't know for sure exactly how this plays out. I just know that it's involved, that this is end time stuff. But as an example, trumpets seem to show us that we are to get ready for judgment. That's what you know, would go on. They would prepare for war and all of those kind of things in the Old Testament. That's what we see in Revelation as well. Then the trumpets blow. There's judgment coming. And that judgment begins with the vials, 
where God's wrath is then poured out on the ungodly. And that judgment is going to be coming from God, from the reigning king. That's worth celebrating this week. That's worth looking forward to, but it's also worth mourning and weeping and wrestling with. Because, as I've mentioned before, I know we all have loved ones that do not know the Lord. And judgment is a very serious thing. Like I said, we, we look for the fun. We want to just, we want to, we're Americans. That's what we do. We can't handle being inconvenienced at all. If you travel out of country, you'll know that Americans have that reputation of being snobs, spoiled little brats. Because if we don't get hotel rooms like the hotel rooms in America, we complain. If we don't get food like the food we have back home, we complain. If the temperature's too hot and their air conditioning doesn't work, we complain. Yeah. We're spoiled. I think that we would do well to reflect on that. And in these days of awe, to say, you know what, I don't deserve any of that. I don't deserve any of the comforts of this life. I don't deserve air conditioning. I don't deserve the food that God has given me. I don't deserve the comfortable bed. It's good for our flesh to suffer. And I think that's part of the benefits of fasting. Now, Yom Kippur is a day of fasting to put that flesh into submission. I love that verse. I can't remember the address, but I love the verse where it says, I think maybe Hebrews, where it says, but you have not yet suffered to the point of shedding your blood. I mean, we don't know what it is to suffer. Oh, we have emotional trials and tribulations, absolutely. But the flesh, we rarely put into submission. And... I think this Wednesday, you should think about that. I was talking with Selah, and Selah was saying, oh, I don't, it's Wednesday, I got a babysit, I can't fast on day of babysitting. I say, yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, just too much for God, isn't it? We will always find an excuse. Always. Well, you know, I'm going to do it this week because this week I don't have so much going on. Or I'm going to do, you know, there, there's always something. Aren't you glad Yeshua didn't think, oh, you know, atonement this year just isn't going to work for me. You know? I think that if you take advantage of the blessing God is offering you in this time of atonement, you are going to experience such, so much more in the celebration of tabernacles this year. And so, think about that. This is a time of cleansing, it's a time of reflection, a time of purity. And so every time your flesh wants to say, oh, I'm hungry, give it to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't deserve the food that you've given me. Thank you for letting my stomach you know, be uncomfortable. Thank you for my brain, my mind being a little bit unsteady here because when I am strong in the flesh, I'm weak in the spirit. But when I am weak in the flesh, I'm strong in the spirit and that's what I want. I want to seek you, Lord. And so, again, we don't live life for the fun stuff. We're preparing for heaven. And maybe if you can start doing it a little bit now on just these few Moedim of God, these appointed times, then maybe you can do it more in your life in general and stop living for the next fun thing that we can do in this world, the next thing, that our next goal to achieve. And that we can just say, you know what? I'm here to serve God. That's why he put me here 
I'm going to work now so that I can rest in heaven. I've been harping on that a lot lately. I don't know why. I think it's just something God has placed on my heart. It's like, when will we learn? I'm looking at what's going on in America today, and I'm looking at where we're headed, and I'm telling you it's not good. But we've fallen asleep again. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of fire. There was a lot of people that were excited and focused. Man, the Lord could be coming back. None of this stuff matters. And now we're back on our stuff again, myself included. And I think it's time that we just say, wow, my focus, I got distracted. I've fallen asleep. Daniel was talking about the, the, the ten virgins today. Listen, you always have to have that oil ready. Don't fall asleep. Don't get distracted. But take advantage of this. That's what this period is for. Not just Wednesday. We are in the ten days of awe. You should be thinking about this on a daily basis. Wednesday is your fast day. But you should be contemplating and evaluating your life. And, and what kind of oil? Do you even have oil ready for when the bridegroom is coming? I can't make you do it. I can only harp on you. But I do so not to bring judgment or sorrow, but to, to bring joy and blessing to you. I, I know that that's what it will do for you. Second Kings, we're getting wrap, going to wrap up here shortly. Second Kings 17.28 Once Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians in uh, 722 B.C.-ish, I think. The Assyrians kind of took over the land and all these lions and wild animals kept coming and kind of taking over and killing the people. And so the king was told it's because we don't know how to worship the God of the land here because they were polytheistic. So they went and got some of the priests to come back to teach them how to worship God. This is what it says, And one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. You think, oh, good. It seemed like God was working. God was giving it an opportunity here. However, Every nation continued to make gods of its own. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. I've said it before, but we're in Babylon, folks. We can have a fear of God, but yet still continue to worship the gods of our culture, the gods of the nations that, have, that we've been born into. Follow their rituals. Verse 34, to this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded. They started with a little bit of fear of God and doing their own thing, but eventually they lose the fear of God as they do their own thing. Is that what's happened to, to maybe even this group? That two years ago... Man, we had a fear of God, we were ready, and then we started doing our own thing. And have we begun to lose the fear of God a little bit? Jamie Walden is very good about talking about the fear of God and how we have just so destroyed the meaning of that. We think, oh, well, we're not supposed to fear God. It's only like, kind of like a respect of the Father. No, you are to fear God because he has the power. Jesus says, fear the one. Don't fear the one who, you know, can kill the body and not, you know, kill the soul. Fear the one who has the power to throw both soul and body in hell. To destroy it. Let me tell you, God is holy and righteous. And again, 
We love the good. Don't want the, we don't want to look at the bad. Let me tell you something. He has died for you. That is the good. But there's a responsibility to Christianity that I think we have forgotten. And that way we have lost our fear. And so we don't want to do the rituals of atonement, the days of awe. Oh, tabernacles, yeah, that, that one's going to be awesome. We got a lot of fun stuff planned. But I don't want to do the whole thing. I'm under grace. Right? Verse 35. With whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. You shall fear him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes... The ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You are to fear him, and you are to keep these statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, all of it. It says, however, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. They had somebody come and teach them. But they wanted to have a foot in both worlds. They wanted to mix the holy and the profane. Do we want to keep a foot in both worlds or are we ready to say, God, I am done with Babylon. I am done. I just want to follow you. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images, also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did, even to this day. I am so glad that I have been doing this long enough that Selah doesn't know anything. But, well, I should say... <laughs> Let me just stop right there. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it there. No. She doesn't know anything but the biblical festivals as far as our family. Now, that doesn't mean that she's not aware. She's in this world. But we've been doing this long enough, and I want to encourage you with these young children, now's the time. Because as you train them up, it will become their culture. It will become their ritual. Because it's all they're going to know. But as long as you keep a foot in both worlds, there's going to be confusion. There's going to be a mixture. And now is the time to say, enough. And I am just as guilty, believe me. Okay, just as guilty. But I don't want my children's children's children to be in Babylon. You want your great-great-grandchildren to be out of Babylon, then it starts with you. It starts with you now. God has sent people to teach you. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? I think you all know what's, what truth is. It's right there in the Bible. It's not some person telling you. It's, it's black and white. You, you, you can't get around it. I'm going to close... Two more slides here. Zechariah 12.10. This is a prophecy of Yeshua. But I think also prophetically of end times and the day of atonement as well. Zechariah 12.10 says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. I love this. I was reading what the Orthodox Jews say of this verse. And it's like, that's the best you've got? Wow. You want to talk about blindness. Because when in all of history have, has Israel ever pierced the Messiah? Only once, and that was Yeshua. What amazes me is you want to talk about, oh my goodness, a person who can read Hebrew 
uh, one for Israel was talking about this. Uh, I don't know which guy, but he was talking about, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. This word only child is interesting. Literally in the Hebrew, he said it means the only begotten. Hmm. How can you miss that? Okay, that's Yeshua. Not only that, but God's name is always a, a plural and singular word at the same time. Elohim, it's a singular word, but it's in the plural form. Im at the end. But this is a very unique word used for only child here. You see, when we say God is one, it, he is ahad. It, it, that's the word for, for one, in a sense. Ahad. God is ahad. That is a singular word in a plural form. Always, always, always God is considered a singular in a plural form. Over and over throughout all the scripture. But here, it's not a chad. It is, as you can see here, chayahid. This is described here in the singular form. And so, not only that, but we see that God came down not as the Trinity, but as Yeshua. <laughs> came down as Yeshua and was pierced. One of the arguments that these Orthodox Jews say is, if it was Yeshua, why aren't the Jews mourning? They're not mourning. We haven't mourned for him. Go ask a Messianic Jew, if they've mourned, they will tell you, yes, we have. One of the first things they do, and I have heard testimony after testimony after testimony, and that's exactly what they do. When they realize all these years they have been rejecting their Messiah, and they find out he is the Messiah, you want to talk about the fear of God. They weep and they mourn. I'm telling you, there's a day coming... And I think we're seeing the gates being opened already where more and more of them are seeing that Yeshua is the Messiah. And they are weeping and they are mourning. But let me tell you, on the Day of Atonement, when this comes, maybe that's what this 144,000 are all about. I don't know. But this prophecy is going to be fulfilled and it has not in completion been fulfilled yet. So, in closing, Hebrews 9.23, I said that we'd talk about it again tonight. I brought it up last week, but I want you to see it again. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, meaning the, the temple, the, the earthly tabernacle and temple, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. In other words, on the Day of Atonement. This is clearly very specifically speaking of on the Day of Atonement, that Christ entered the most holy place of heaven to offer himself as the high priest and the sacrifice of atonement. And so, as you celebrate and meditate upon this festival, I want you to remember not to just look forward, but to look back. To look to the present right now where you're at. But to remember that Christ, this is what it was about. Not just Passover. But he's coming again. And judgment day is what this is going to be about. For us, that will be glorious. For those who do not know the Lord, it is going to be awful. And so 
We need to be praying for them. We need to be praying that God gives us focus so that maybe we get off our duff to go spread the word, not worry so much about what people think of us, and just stand up for truth and let the chips fall where they may when we do. Because that's our purpose here on this earth. So we'll close in prayer.